Well, I've come to speak here a number of years in a row and at times given talks that have to do with the nature of practice on the foundations of mindfulness or the working with the body or the heart or the mind and ways to uh, have it, the opening of consciousness and awareness pervade our life. Um, sometimes on particular teachings on karma or compassion. Um, this evening I'd like to do a different kind of Dharma talk and it's a bit of an experiment um, which is to look at one of the kinds of the teachings of the Buddha that are particularly relevant to communities and to people who've been practicing for some time. So it's not so much an introductory talk. And if you look in the texts that are left by the Buddha, the sutras, you see that some of them give meditation instructions. Others are dialogues on truth, not teaching meditation, but with this person, a dialogue about what you know to be true about life. Are you this or are you that? Who do you think you are in this moment? And in this dialogue, people awaken. Some of them are teachings on wise conduct or skillful relationship or renunciation and simplicity. And this sutra, which is on the Buddha's last teachings, um, is one that would be normally called a historical text. It's one of the great texts, the Mahaparinirvana Sutra. And part of the experiment is to teach it not as history, but for you to learn to listen to these teachings to make them more relevant for present time. So try to listen in that way, and I'll have some questions. It'll be, it'll be a little bit of a test as we go along. <laughs> Because the story of the Buddha is, whether history or myth, if we could call it that, is one of the great myths of humankind. And over thousands of years it has been recited and understood and influenced the way that beings have lived in all parts of the world in hundreds and hundreds of millions of lives. So it's a great story. And the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, which we will speak, is a part of that story, the last year of the Buddha's life. And it begins, if we are to look at it in mythological terms rather than just as a history, it begins um, with a somewhat mythological language. It says, as sutras often begin, thus I have heard once the Lord, the Blessed One, was staying at Rajgir and a mountain called Vulture's Peak. But in a number of places in the sutra, it speaks about a time prior to the Buddhas. And it uses a phrase, the closest equivalent in English is once upon a time. You've heard that before, haven't you? And even in the end, the very last words of the sutra are, and this is how it was, or thus is how it was, in the old days. So there's a kind of setup of this language. Once upon a time, on Vulture's Peak, so you can imagine a mountain where the buzzards and the vultures lived, that sticks up from the plains of India at a time when this mountain, which is in Bihar province, was still in a place of great forests and tigers. Now India is mostly deforested in that area and denuded. The soils are poor and overtilled. And Bihar province, where Bodhgaya, the Buddha's enlightenment place, and Rajgir and Vulture's Peak, um, are the, is the poorest province in India. But it wasn't so long, long ago. And in this story that we will consider together, the events of the Buddha's life at the end teach us two themes. How to guide one's practice as the Buddha leaves the Sangha. As the Buddha gets ready to die, he passes on some advice to you. And the other theme is of wise relationships to one another and the world in spiritual community. 
it fulfills these themes, the myth, by setting up the in image of a kingdom of compassion and respect and justice. The central image of this great sutra, many pages, is the image of a kingdom. And it begins by the minister of the king of Magadha coming to see the Buddha on behalf of his king and saying, should we make war against our neighbors, the Vajians, who have at times disturbed our peace and caused difficulties in our communities, should we go back and make war upon them? And the minister sits, after paying his respects on Vulture's Peak, sits down with the Buddha, raises this question, and then waits in silence. And the Buddha then asks some questions. He says, do the Vajians hold regular and frequent assemblies? Do the Vajians in their kingdom meet in harmony, conduct business in harmony, break up in harmony? If so, they can be expected to prosper and not decline. Do they follow the ancient teachings, which was authorized and known by their elders? Do they honor and respect the elders among them and listen to, consider them list, worth listening to? What do we do with elders in this society? Do they take care of those who are weak, children, women, and not in any way abuse them? Do they respect and, and revere the nature the shrines and the natural world of their kingdom. For if they do so, if they honor the tradition of their elders, they meet and break up in harmony, if they follow the teachings of virtue with one another, respect those who are weak, take care of their environment, then they will prosper and not decline. And then the Buddha goes on and he says to the monks, my friends, as long as you two and the nuns and the whole collected community, as long as you meet in harmony and as long as you conduct business with respect and harmony, break up in harmony, as long as you revere the elders among you, as long as you preserve your own personal mindfulness, and pay respect to that which deserves respect, as long as there is goodwill and loving-kindness among you between your companions, as long as you see a true perception of life without grasping after things, and in public and private ways follow the Dharma, so too will the community of the followers of the teachings prosper and not decline. Now, it really asks a question about, several questions. One is about our own society. What happens to society that doesn't respect the environment, that doesn't take care of children and others who are sick or weak in some way, that doesn't revere its elders and its traditions? This is the Buddha talking about wise society and wise spiritual community. But here's a question for you as you listen. Why didn't the Buddha just say to this minister, no war, war is bad, forget war? Why, why didn't he do that? Anybody got an idea? There'll be a number of questions tonight. So here you have this story. And here's the Buddha sitting there and this minister saying, should we make war? And instead of saying, no, no more war, war is bad, the Buddha says, how do they live? Why is this so? Oh, I'm wondering, um, what do you want? Somebody says, should we make war? The underlying question is, what do you want? So one question is, what do you want? How can we resolve this? How can you resolve this? Anyone else have an idea? Yes? It helps to bring out compassion. It helps to bring out compassion. Another? I think along those lines to look more deeply at the enemy 
that the to understand the, pla- the, the position of the enemy. So that is so. It, he's directing them to look at what they would call the enemy. I think there's another reason as well. And that is that in this whole sutra, you'll see as it goes along, the Buddha is not trying to create an imaginary world and say there should be no more war. Instead, what he's doing is saying war arises due to certain causes. The foolish look at the effects and the wise look at the causes. This is in one of the teachings of the Buddha. So rather than saying that there shouldn't be war as some imaginary thing, the Buddha here is saying we need to relate to the truth of war, that it happens, and understand what causes a just kingdom and understand what causes injustice. It's really asking for our attention and our compassion. Then, as the story continues, the gist of the sutra includes a sequence of travels of the Buddha, the announcement of his death, the last disciples who come, the very last teachings, what to keep in mind as one follows the path, the last meal, and what happens at his death. So the Buddha, the minister left Raj, the Vulture's Peak and Rajgir, and the Buddha with a large company of monks and nuns descended from Vulture's Peak and walked to Nalanda near Pavarika's mango grove, and there they rested, 500 of them, which 500 is a mythological number here. It means a lot of them, because <laughs> 500 is used over and over again. Again, you can tell that this is really talking in archetypal language. And here's a way that makes it even clearer that it's speaking archetypally, which means in the patterns of human life rather than just historically. In Pavarika's mango grove, Sariputra, the chief disciple of the Buddha, comes up to him and says, never has there been a better or more enlightened teacher on this earth than Lord Buddha. And the Buddha looks back at him with kind of his eyes open a little bit, according to the description, and he says, this is quite a lion's roar that you give, Sariputra, do you know the past Buddhas prior to me? Sariputra says, no. <laughs> well, then perhaps you know the future Buddhas yet to come. And Sariputra says, no. And he says, then perhaps you know the mind of the present Buddha fully, Sariputra. <sighs> Sariputra says, no, Lord. Then how is it, Sariputra, chief disciple that you are, nevertheless, that you can make such a statement? And Sariputra says, Imagine, my lord, that there is a great kingdom and in the center of it a great city. And this great city has ramparts and walls that are so tightly built together, the joints of the stones are such that not even a small creature can enter the city except by the great gate in the center. The mighty wall around the city completely encloses it and there is a single gatekeeper. And this gatekeeper rests and is established in mindfulness, in presence. This gatekeeper is established in wisdom and compassion. Could anything, Lord, go in and out of that city unknown to this gatekeeper? And the Buddha says, not so. And Sariputra says, in such a way, every great disciple of a Buddha, of freedom, enters through the same gate. It is the gate of mindfulness that rests in the center of our being and sees all that arises with compassion and with wisdom and in thus such a way, resting in that truth of mindfulness, they are awakened and freed in this world. And the Buddha says something like, thus it is, Sariputra. So you hear again the sense of setting up of a kingdom of centeredness, of a righteousness of justice um, that's based on the principle of attention to this moment. If you take care of what is here in the gate of this moment, then all of the past and future is covered when you are present, because the future is a thought, and the past is a thought. What we have is what is now, the eternal present. So then they leave, Uh, Pavarika's mango grove 
and they, they wander a bit further in a company of good friends, and the question comes of the wise relationship to the teachings. And they arrive at the Ganges River, which is in flood stage. And they look at the Ganges River, and then magically the Buddha transports himself to the other side of the Ganges River. All the other monks, nuns who follow, take rafts across. But the Buddha's there waiting for him, for them. And he says, this is the famous teaching, speaking to those of making rafts to cross the river. He says, my friends, is it useful to have a raft across the flood of the rivers? Yes, it is, they say. And my friends, once having crossed the river, is it useful to carry this raft, to lift it up and place it upon your head and carry it with you? No, Lord, it doesn't make very much sense, they replied. And then he said, in a similar way, the teachings I have given you are to be used as a raft across the flood of sorrows. And when you have done so, there is no need even to carry those teachings on or in your head. Then the Buddha sat to rest under a great tree in the forest, and Mara, the evil one, came to visit him. Mara appears periodically since the night of the Buddha's enlightenment a number of times since then to tempt the Buddha in different ways. And each time Mara appears, the Buddha says, Oh, is that you, Mara? And Mara gets embarrassed, it says, and ashamed and slouches and slinks away, saying, muttering under his breath, the Blessed One sees me, he knows me. So this time Mara repeats his visit again. And the Blessed One sees him and Mara says, May the Blessed One take final nirvana and leave this world. Because in the past I have asked you to do so. And you, the Buddha, replied, Not until the dispensation was well taught and expounded to the many and carried on by many wise teachers and a great order established within all the directions of the land. Not until the Dharma was there to be found by anyone who sought it will the Blessed One take his final nirvana. But now, says Mara, I see that you've accomplished that. Will you not leave now? <laughs> and the Buddha looks at him and says, I see you, Mara. Mara says, oh no, he sees me again for what I am. But then the Buddha says, interestingly, no need to worry about this, Mara. It's almost like they have this long-standing relationship, right? No need to worry about this. In not very long, in not very many months, the Blessed One will indeed take final nirvana. And as soon as he said this, there was a great earthquake. So here's a question for you. Why does Mara keep reappearing in the stories of the Buddha? Any ideas? What does this mean? You're trying to consider living wisely. Why is this part of this text? Simple, yeah. Because it's uh, never over once and for all. You're always facing new temptations. Because it's never over once and for all. You're always facing new temptations. And yet, the Buddha is perfected. There is no longer any arising of greed or hatred or delusion within him. So why does Mara keep coming in the story? Because it's so even for the Buddha? Because <laughs> it's what? Could it be so even for the Buddha? Could it be so even for the Buddha? That's one possibility. Yes, please. Mara means death, and life and death coexist One meaning of Mara is death, and life and death coexist in each moment. These are both pointing to an understanding in this myth. That is, again, like the question of war, the Buddha is not trying to set up for all beings some ideal world, but that birth and death and joy and sorrow um, and grasping and freedom are the very dynamic, the fabric of life. And so again here, um, we see that Mara arises because we have to relate to Mara. Even if we're a Buddha, even if we are free, there's still the conditions or the circumstances of that energy that is true in the world that we have to relate to. So you don't want to be idealistic about it. You practice, you find what freedom you can, 
and this is the nature of life. So then there's this great earthquake, terrible, hair-raising, thunderous earthquake, and Ananda is awakened from his nap or wherever he's meditating, and he comes quickly to the Buddha, and he says, what is the cause of this earthquake? And the Buddha says there are eight reasons for earthquakes. You know how they're this. Powerful movements of the earth elements, powerful movements of the water element, like tidal waves and so forth. When a Buddha is conceived, when a Buddha is born, when a Buddha is enlightened, when a Buddha turns the wheel of the Dharma, when a Buddha renounces the life force and knows that they will die, that's this one, and then at the moment of death of a Buddha. And Ananda says, well, what made this one happen? <laughs> and he says, well, this is the Buddha has now renounced the force of life. It is time for the Buddha to die. And Mara gets on his knees and he weeps. Uh, Ananda gets on his knees and he weeps and he begs, would you please stay? Won't you please stay? Many times you have said that you could live a long, long time, Ananda says to the Buddha. You can imagine him and that place in yourself that loves the Dharma, loves your teachers, or loves, the, loves that which is beautiful in your spiritual life, won't you please remain? And the Buddha looks back, and this is a very interesting thing that happens in this story. And he said, yes, many times I gave you hints in Black Snake Pool in the forest, in Jivaka's Mango Grove, in the Deer Park in Rajgir, in the cool woods of Tapoda. Many times I gave you a hint that the Buddha could live a long, long time if someone were to ask him so. But Ananda, you never did in all those times. And so yours is the fault, he says to Ananda. You never asked. You ignored the broad hints that the Buddha gave you so many times. Yours is the failure. And yours is the fault. And now the body of the Buddha is like an old cart held together by straps and strings. And so the body of the Buddha is ready to die. Now imagine saying that. Here's his chief attendant, you know. What a guilt thing to say to poor Ananda. Why is this in here? What may... Again, we're trying to make sense not just as history, but for this really speaks to our condition in, in understanding how to live wisely. Why is the Buddha doing this to Ananda? One hand, yes. Yes. So one way is to help see how he avoided his own fears by a kind of denial or unwillingness to deal with them. Any other reasons? Yes. He avoided the intimacy of that connection. This is getting a little modern, but we'll take it. <laughs> Buddhas who love too much or something. <laughs> One more. Um, is he providing um, Ananda's own reflection of how he might feel at this time? Is he providing Ananda a reflection of how he might feel at this time? That might also be so. Another very important reason to consider. This is really talking about the teacher-student relationship in a quite profound and wonderful way. It says that even if you are with the Buddha, the teacher-student relationship is not and can never be a one-way affair. That each person, each person in this partnership of awakening has a responsibility. And that Ananda had a responsibility just as the Buddha did. It, you can't leave it for your teacher to do for you. You have to be awake and present and take responsibility for what is happening and for what you most deeply care about. And later on in the sutra, just before the Buddha dies, he praises Ananda for his beauty and his care and timing and sensitivity and says that Ananda has remarkable qualities that please those when he speaks and please those who see him. And 
teaching and guiding and bring people to see the Buddha and having them leave. So there, there's a whole lot in which the Buddha loves Ananda. But this piece really speaks to something that we need to know about the dual responsibility of awakening with the teacher. So we continue now. Now in each scene, and the sutra goes on and on through a very variety of scenes, when the minister leaves from, ra- from the vulture's peak in Rajgir, or when those who use their rafts along the river and come along with the monks and then leave after taking teachings, or when Sariputra and Ananda speak with the Buddha and then go back with the other monks as they wander with a large company of followers, at the end of each scene, there's a phrase that the Buddha uses to whomever has come to speak with him. And this phrase is, now it is time for you to go and do as you see fit. The minister came, they had that dialogue, now it is time for you to go and do as you see fit. Or Sariputra has this dialogue, now it is time for you to go and do as you see fit. Why does this keep reappearing? Why is this in there? Over and over, a kind of refrain at the end of each encounter. Yes? You have to integrate any teaching and make it yours. Yes? One more? The learning is nothing until it translates into action. Yes? And the Buddha can be infinitely compassionate, but your teacher cannot do it for you. Nobody can let go for you. Nobody can love for you. Nobody can be enlightened for you. That the Buddhas point the way, they offer examples, they give a sense of awakening in their presence, they give teachings, but the teacher cannot do it for you. No one can let go for you. And so again, you hear how this is setting up over and over a wise relationship between human beings where the responsibility lies. So then they say, the monks are around the Buddha at this point in the forest, and they say, so who will be our guide when you are gone? And the Buddha says, I put no one in charge of the community or the Sangha. There's no person who will replace the Buddha and be in charge. Instead, let the Dharma and Vinaya, the discipline of conduct and the teachings be your guide. Be an island unto yourself. And then he says, how can you do this? How will you follow this? He says, if you contemplate with mindfulness this very body, feelings, mind, and all that arises within the mind, and you yourself become familiar with grasping, and attachment, and the freedom or release that comes when you abandon grasping and attachment, then you will know, as I do, the freedom of the Dharma. Then someone says, well, that's fine, all right, so we're supposed to follow the Dharma and the Vinaya rather than a teacher, we're supposed to follow the teachings. But how will we know what is the Dharma? It's the next question to the Buddha. And the Buddha says there are four ways to not know, right? (laughs) The first way to not know is in a spiritual community, those who say, I heard it from the Buddha. That's not the way. (laughs) Or in a spiritual community to say that many of the members of the community have heard this to be the Dharma. And then you shouldn't approve or disapprove. Or many in a circle of elders say, this is the true Dharma. Or even a learned and respected master says, this is the teachings of the Buddha. You should neither approve nor disapprove, but rather consider it, and only if it conforms to the essence, to the gist of all that you know of the Buddha's teachings, which is the foundations of mindfulness, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the factors of enlightenment, the conduct that is beautiful, 
the stilling of the mind that is samadhi, and the wisdom to see that all things change, if it follows the Four Noble Truths and the Four Foundations of Mindfulness and so forth, then you know it is the teachings of the Buddha. And if it doesn't, it doesn't matter who says it or what their authority, it's not. So the Buddha places that authority back to each individual and he says, here it is, here's the gist, in case anybody wants to know. It's in these basic teachings. And then over and over as he travels through this, he meets people who ask for the teachings and he gives them eight different times in this sutra the same way. He says that this is beautiful conduct, that is not harming other beings. This is the stilling of the mind, that's meditation. And this is wisdom, seeing that nothing can be possessed or owned, that there is no separate self to possess or own a single thing. You don't even own this body. This is beautiful conduct, non-harming. This is the stilling of the mind and the heart. And this is the wisdom, compassion that grows. And he says it over and over to people. And says, those who don't understand this and act in ways contrary, it leads to peril. They lose their respect or reputation or wealth or lose their sleep or die confused. Not small things, my friends. But those who know and follow the way of beautiful conduct, not harming other beings, which is a letting go, the way of stilling the heart and mind, and the way of wisdom and compassion, those, on the contrary, live beautifully, sleep beautifully, and when they die, have a beautiful death. So then they continue to wander. This group of 500 or however many it is, monks and nuns. They travel from place to place and you get a sense in their travels of moving from one scene to another and yet of enormous peacefulness. What a beautiful image for us to live, to move as we do through our day or through our life from place to place and yet for the heart to be at, re at peace. And then they rest again in a large and beautiful forest grove. And as they are there, the courtesan, you know what that is, right? <laughs> the courtesan named Ambapali arrives with many of her women attendants dressed in the finest silks, very, very beautiful, coming in her best carriages, and then all of them getting down and walking into the forest grove respectfully on foot, paying her respects to the Buddha, and the Buddha instructed and roused and inspired and awakened in her the eye of the Dharma. He taught her how to sit with dignity and presence, to follow her breath, to be aware of the arising of sensations of the body, of feelings, to notice all the play of thoughts, to notice when the mind was contracted and grasping and fearful, and to notice the possibility of releasing, of spaciousness, of freedom to notice when she was confused, and to notice that space around confusion that leads to absolute peace. And after rousing and instructing her in the four foundations of mindfulness in this way, she sat to one side respectfully, much more awakened than when she came, and she invited the Buddha and his company of followers to her court, if you will, to her home, and he agreed to go. And then following this, she left, and right upon her heels, the nobles of Lichavi, a great group of them arrived in royal carts with horses and elephants and banners dressed in blue and red and yellow and white silks, and paid their respects to the Buddha. And again, the Buddha roused and inspired them and taught them. And they said, would you not come to the kingdom of the Lichavis tomorrow and dine, have breakfast with us while you are still here? And the Buddha said, no, I'm sorry, I've already accepted a meal. And they said, from whom have you accepted it? And he said, from the courtesan Ambapali. And they raced after her. They said, no, that, that mango woman, <laughs> which is the slang for courtesan, prostitute, whatever, that you, you've accepted an invitation from the mango woman. 
instead of us noble that we are. They raced after her and they offered her, would you give us the invitation? She said, no. They said, for a hundred thousand gold pieces. And she said, not for a kingdom would I give this invitation. And they went back and they begged the Buddha. And he looked at them and he said, my dear friends, she was first. <laughs> now why does the courtesan appear here in the story? Why is she here? Someone? Because Buddha nature is in everyone. Beautiful. And this is really a story about who can practice. And what does the Buddha value? And the Buddha doesn't value those who come in carts or, or whatever conveyance they bring. The value of the Buddha is the value of the awakened heart or the awakened mind. And it's very important to say here because we live in still a racist society. And it's painful to see, but it's true that there was no race and no caste that mattered all to the Buddha. He would say in the beginning of the ordination, when you come and enter the community, or in many of the great texts, O noble one, come and join us. The nobly born is not that born to a priestly family or a rich family or a Brahmin family. Nobility has nothing to do with race or caste or class or creed. Nobly born means the nobility of heart. And so we have, this is reminiscent of the New Testament in some ways, we have the uh, mango woman, the courtesan Ambapali. So then the story goes on, and they wander yet further in peace, and they come to the last meal at the Pava mango forest where Kunda the smith offers the last meal to the Buddha. And in this meal, as the myth goes, only the Buddha eats this meal, which is to say it's really meant just for him, this particular meal. And Kunda the smith has offered the best hard and soft foods, this description of, of really the beauty of generosity that's here over and over in the sutra, the same courtesan Ambapali offers the best hard and soft foods. The most beautiful spirit of hospitality rides through this whole story. And it really speaks about learning the hospitality of our, of the generosity of our Buddha nature, our true nature. And then the Buddha begins to get sick, and Ananda sees this, and the Buddha says, I want to send you back, because the, the man who offered this last meal is going to hear that I got sick, and he is going to feel very bad about this. Can you imagine? So I want to give you a message. Go back to Kunda the Smith and say that there are two meals that make the greatest merit of all in the entire life of a Buddha. That is the milk rice that is given to the Buddha before his enlightenment. And the last meal, which has the greatest blessing and power and benefit. I want you to go and reassure him of this. Now, why does this happen? Anyone? What do you think? I and mean, this, again, is trying to teach us something. I think it's an act of common sense down to earth, compassionate action. It's an act of common sense, down to earth, compassion, to be kind to him. Why else? There's another teaching buried in it. Yes? Teaching us to let go of our mistakes, no matter what they are. Teaching us to let go of our mistakes, that's certainly part of it. Here's another teaching in it. It's a very profound teaching about karma and the essence of karma. Because the teaching of karma, which the Buddha repeated over and over, has to do with intention. You can take a knife and cut open the body of another human being, and blood will pour out and they will die as a murderer and make a particular kind of karma. You can do the same act, take a knife, cut the person open as a surgeon, they may even die in the operation, but you have an entirely different intention in cutting that body open with a knife, and it produces an entirely different karma. You can hear that, yes? The key to understanding cause and effect, or consequences in our life, is motivation, is in the intention. So this is the teaching of intention that's buried in here. What matters is that you pay very careful attention 
to what is the motivation as you act, because it's that motivation that leads to the consequences. So then they go and sit, he's starting to feel sick, in a forest glade. And Pukusa, a wandering ascetic, comes by after the Buddha is sitting. And the Buddha awakens from his sitting, Pukusa waits, and he says, would you go and fetch me some water from the stream? And Pakusa says, but there was a huge great rainstorm, and then after that there were 500 ox carts that came by. The stream is going to be muddy. And the Buddha says, go fetch me a cup of water from the stream. And Pakusa says, but lightning and thunder and downpours, the stream's all muddy in the ox carts. And the Buddha says again, please fetch me a cup of water. And Pakusa goes down. And he's amazed the water is clear. Isn't that a beautiful image? doesn't matter what happens, the water remains clear, like the wish-fulfilling gem, like, is it alum? Is there a chemist in the room? The, the, the compound that you put in water that allows all the particulate to settle out? This is a description of the Buddha's mind, really. And then the Buddha says, a big storm, an earthquake, 500 akkarts. I didn't even notice. The mind of the Buddha enters the world of form, and the formless, the jhanas, and then moves beyond that to the dharma body, to that which is beyond all form. And Pakusa says, this is a very impressive teacher, he just met him, and he bows after the Buddha has roused and inspired him, and, and says, you have set up what has been knocked down, pointed the way to one has been lost, lit a lamp in a dark place, so that those with eyes could see you have spoken the truth and I see it. And he was awakened. And then he offered him robes. And as the Buddha placed these robes on his body, his skin began to glow with a golden glow ten times brighter than the robes. Now why is that in here? Why does his skin begin to glow? Somebody. Golden it glowed, ten times brighter than the robes. Again, this is myth, remember, our archetype. Gold is the royal metal. It is the symbol of what is precious. It's malleable, beautiful, and it cannot be tarnished. Of all the metals, gold is the one metal that no matter what happens to it, it can't be tarnished. You can dissolve it if you have the right combination of acid, of sulfuric and hydrochloric acid, aqua regia. But other than that, gold is untarnishable. And so gold is clear and bright and unalterable and untarnishable, and it is the archetypal symbol for the natural beauty and brightness of the mind. So when the Buddha is getting ready to die, even his body gives off this golden glow of beauty. Then great pains came, severe bloody sickness. Why is this in here? Hmm? One of the most important things about the story of the Buddha is that he did die. And he died like anybody else in that way. That our tr the true nature of the human form, the natural thing to happen, is that that which comes into being arises for a certain time due to certain supporting conditions, and as the conditions change, then it disappears. Like mushrooms come and go, bodies come and go, breaths come and go whole solar systems arise and pass. And so the Buddha had great pains and severe bloody sickness preparing to die. And he got down, saw some trees, and lay down in the lion's pose on his side with one foot on top of the other between two sal trees. And as soon as he did, the trees went into bloom, filled with flowers out of season. And then Ananda looked at him very tenderly, and the Buddha said, Ananda, please move aside a bit, because there are gathering the angels and devas from the 10,000 world systems, angels of unsurpassed beauty and radiance and purity and kindness and peace and goodness are all coming to see the last moments of the Buddha. So then Ananda looked around and began to weep and complained, and he said, do not die here. Go back to Kosala or to B Benares. This is nowhere. This is a miserable backwater 
a daub and wattle village is what it says in the text. Some anthropologist helped here with the translation. but This is a daub and wattle village, which means mud, basically, right? Go to the great cities for a Buddha like you should die in Kosala or Banaras. And the Buddha answers. He says, do not call this a miserable backwater, a, a, a daub and wattle village. For once upon a time long ago, here's that again in this great story, there was on this very spot a king who reigned, King Mahasudasana, who was a wheel-turning monarch, the kind of greatest king in the world, prosperous and just. And from this kingdom on this very spot, there were four great highways that went out north and south and east and west, roads stretching in each direction. And the roads were never free of the sounds of elephants and carriages and gongs, of commerce and cattle and symbols. It was well populated, and it was a kingdom of justice where those who lived in this kingdom treated one another in accordance with the Dharma. It was a great kingdom indeed. Now, why is this in the story? Again, we're trying to hear this as teachings that the Buddha's leaving for us you know, as he is ready to die. Why is this piece, the Dalban Waddle village and the story of once upon a time, King Mahasudasana? Yes? So not to, not to judge things by their appearances. That's a beautiful teaching. What else? So something that exists long ago, even if it's not visible now, now, doesn't mean it's still not valuable. One more? Just like before, Buddha nature is in everyone, Buddha nature is everywhere. That's right. Part of this teaching is also about the Absolute. T.S. Eliot's phrase, the still point of the turning world, that what this says to us is that any place of Dharma is a place of justice, is the center of the kingdom, is the place of the kingdom of righteousness and forgiveness, and even more than that, is the place of the absolute. It cannot be located physically in some place. Whenever the mind is still and the heart is open, in any moment that we are truly present and wise in the deepest way, we touch in that silence the place of the Buddha that any place, wherever you are, is that kingdom. Then there's one last visitor who comes up to see the Buddha, a wandering ascetic named Subhadda. And Ananda says, no, Subhadda, the Buddha's had many visitors being sick now, and he is weary. But the Buddha hears this outside, or a little outside a little ways, distance away, and he says, Ananda, please let him in, for he will ask a good question. And if he were to have come to see the Buddha and missed seeing him, be the last person who would want to see him and miss seeing him, I would not want that to be left for him. Isn't that beautiful? You know, I mean, you can imagine somebody on their deathbed and someone comes in, say, there's something, even here, the, the compassion of the Buddha is so beautiful. He's concerned of what that would be like for that person. So he says, let me give him of the last of my energy to give him some attention to, so that he doesn't live a life with that regret. So he says, let him in, for the Dharma is open-handed. Isn't that beautiful? That it's not held back. It's there for you to see and to practice. And he teaches them the noble path, and Subhadda, as the others, awakens in some measure. And then, with all of those around, standing around him, the Buddha says, do you have any of you any last doubts about the way? And no one speaks. There's this great and amazing silence. And the Buddha smiles 
And he says, I have shown the way, and you have followed the way. Then be of good resolve, all of you, nobly born, each of you who has within you this potential of awakening. And if you practice rightly, the earth will never be free of enlightened beings. It's a wonderful phrase. Remember, says the Buddha, again, in his last words, looking around, remember all created things are subject to impermanence. Everything that arises appears in a form for a certain time and is subject to change. No exceptions to this. All things are impermanent. They change. Be a light. Be a lamp unto yourself and find your freedom with mindfulness. And these were his last words. And then he closed his eyes, as the story goes, and went through, as was known by those with him who had the power to see, all of the great meditative states that were possible, higher and more and more refined states, and then finally went out like a great fire that has exhausted its fuel. From a Chinese text from the Buddha, I consider the position of kings and rulers to be that as dust motes. I see the treasures of gold and gems as broken tiles. I look upon the finest silken robes as tattered rags. I see the myriad worlds of the universe as small seeds and the great Indian Ocean as a drop of oil at my foot. I look upon the judgment of right and wrong as the serpentine dance of a dragon and the rise and fall of beliefs as but traces left by the four seasons. And so the Buddha left in utter peace, for the world is the natural world, and it wasn't out of harmony with the natural world. And then, 10,000, thousand devas and angels wept, and the sky began to rain, perfumed rain, and the earth shook with a great earthquake, and many who had not completely freed themselves of full enlightenment, who were not completely and utterly freed, who had not overcome their attachments, wept. And those monks who had not overcome these attachments tore their hair, raising their arms, throwing themselves down, twisting, turning, crying, all too soon the Blessed One has passed away, all too soon the welfarer has left. The eye of wisdom, the heart of knowledge has disappeared. And those monks who were free simply said, again, all things which are impermanent pass away. And they then continued to weep and moan and the angels wept. And finally in one text it says that the arhats, the enlightened ones, began to grumble and complain a little bit. That's what it says in one translation. Don't you know, don't you know that the Buddha just said, all created things change. It's like Zen Master Suzuki Roshi's phrase for this. He said, all of Buddhism can be summed up in three words. Not always so. <laughs> to really understand that, to not grasp a single thing. Don't you know that? He just said it. Remember that, they said. So why is it then that we have this scene of those grieving and gnashing their teeth and weeping and, and clinging and the others, the arhats or the enlightened ones who are, who are there, you know, saying all things are impermanent. Why are you getting upset? Why is this scene set in this way? Really simple. Someone? Getting tired, huh? <laughs> because life isn't free of sorrow. And because, in a way, this scene has the opposites that we must hold. 
in it, as someone spoke earlier, of birth and death, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, of what is universal and free and what is personal. And even the great Tibetan teacher Marpa, who spoke so much about freedom and the emptiness of all things when his son died, he wept tears. And then they came and said, but you were enlightened and you said all things change. How can you weep at the death of your son? You know, when you say that nothing is real in that way, that it lasts. And Marpa replied something to the effect that even though nothing is real, in some ways, the death of a child still has its own reality. And so the death of the Buddha had those who wept and those who understood. And those who understood, the wisest saw him. And it's like those gathered around Ramana Maharshi, the great sage of India who died in 1950, the wisest, or many considered the greatest teacher of this century in India. And when Ramana Maharshi was dying of cancer, because everyone dies of something, and they said, his disciples, please, don't leave us. Don't leave us. And he looked at them with tremendous compassion, these wonderful fellows of him, and he said, but where could I go? Where could I go? When you understand there is no one coming and going, there is no coming and going. When you rest in what is true, you rest, and you all know it, for a moment you know it, you rest in the eternal. And the forms change, but the eternal is here. And so a funeral was held according to when they asked the Buddha before he died how he should be taken care of. And the Buddha said the remains of Buddhas should be treated like the remains of a wheel-turning monarch. And his body was wrapped with 15 layers of the softest cotton. Excuse me, 500 layers of the softest cotton. And then 500 layers of spun linen, and then it was placed in a great iron pot, and perfumed woods of sandalwood and other kinds were placed around it, and great offerings, and a song came, angelic song and chanting from the monks, and it went on from, for some days and nights. And finally, then a great peace appeared. And 500 monks stood up and circled around with their right shoulders bare around the fire, led by Mahakasapa, paying respects for the last time to the body of the Buddha. And the fire ignited by itself, and the rain poured down flowers. And all those who were there said it was a great wonder. And when this great fire went out, there was nothing left but ashes. And these ashes were divided and given to the different castes and the different peoples and the different directions, north, south, east, west, northeast, southwest, all of the ten directions, which is to say that the Buddha doesn't exist in one place but exists in all places. And a great stupa was built at this crossroads in Kushinagar, which is still there to this day if you want to see it, a magnificent and huge great dome-shaped stupa that's like half the world that's there over the remains of the Buddha. And the world-honored one who died in that place for 2,500 years, people have gone to that spot on this earth to praise and respect and honor and celebrate the awakened one. Namo tatsa bhagavato arahato samma Samputasa, and to respect one another, to go there and to come here to CIMC or IMS or the temples of Thailand or India or Burma, wherever you practice, it's as if you go to the place of this story, to that kingdom of justice. For if we long for, as we do, beauty and compassion and justice, in the midst of this great world of opposites, of birth and death and joy and sorrow, if we wish to awaken to that which is eternal, the way has been given, the way of the perfection of our conduct, of speech and action that is beautiful and not harming, that's free, 
the way of the stilling of the mind and the heart, of the settling of the peaceful heart, and the way of wisdom. And it's always here to be found in this community if, as it begins in this sutra, we treat one another with respect, if we practice mindfulness both privately and in community together, if we honor elders, if we honor the environment, if we practice in this way, and if we establish awareness and compassion, if we are true to the Dharma, which is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end, then the earth will not be free of enlightened beings. So let's just sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.